Welcome, welcome to the Linen Suit and Placid Tie Podcast. This is the podcast where we dissect and analyze the amazing, the spectacular, the wonderful, the extremely awesome power of storytelling and learn how to harness that power to supercharge our everyday lives. I'm Gorev. And I'm Kevin. Kevin, I'm on my, I'm on my couch today. I'm, I'm with my uh, portable microphone. I'm sitting on the couch. I'm, uh, I'm lounging it. I'm not at my desk. It's very nice. It's a nice life. Okay. I, I can see that. Uh, our audience can't, but okay. Yeah, I'm painting the picture for them, you know. Mm-hmm. It's uh, me on my couch. Uh, I have I have Netflix on my screen, but it's not playing anything. So it's in, it's in like, a, you know, that like slideshow mode where they're showing me different images from different shows. Uh-huh. Like, it's trying to inspire me to click and watch one of these shows. I wonder what that job is like um, to like pick the the thumbnails or like pick the images and it's like yeah, there's got to be a job title for that. We need to find out what that is. Well, if we you know, know there's a job title for written descriptions. Uh, yes, we do. It is called a product writing specialist. Yes, people, it is a real job title. They write uh, synopsis for show episodes. So every summary of a show that you episode you see people actually do that and i love i love weird jobs the storytelling behind that just just think about this and by the way this was not the intro i was i was thinking about but think about that there's so much storytelling that comes into the the data side of netflix right the thumbnails it shows and the way the descriptions are written or the slideshow or what it's recommending yeah let alone the fact that you would have to watch the whole thing watch the whole episode or show beforehand and then decide what are the one or two points you want to keep into this you know two three sentence paragraph that's really gonna draw people in you are the one to decide what details you want to keep in and what to leave out that it's a lot of you know storytelling in there for sure you know, Netflix was the first mover in the streaming market. For many years, streaming was Netflix. Netflix was streaming. They were the same thing. Anytime we talked about streaming, we were talking about Netflix. But now, because it became popular and it blew up, uh, so many different types of streaming services popped up. Now, Netflix is its own brand that has to disconnect from the entire market and say, hey, this is who we are. We're not just promoting streaming anymore. We're promoting Netflix itself. You know, something very similar happened with crypto and Bitcoin. Still, because it's a very new emerging technology, people relate crypto to Bitcoin and kind of think it's the same thing. But Bitcoin is very separate. Bitcoin is a type of crypto like Netflix is a type of streaming product. While they were both the kind of first popularized mover, they're different. And this guest today is going to talk to us a little bit more about Bitcoin and why it's so important to brand it not as crypto but bitcoin itself so kev who are we talking to today wow we, we finally got here this, this is a whole journey how we turned the whole conversation from netflix to bitcoin but today we are talking to stephen cole he is right now an angel investor uh, and venture partner uh that's uh very much focused in the Bitcoin space. He started off his career, you know, as a computer science graduate in the tech world, 
as an engineering leader, and later on became exposed and interested in Bitcoin specifically. So we're going to talk to him today about you know his own stories with Bitcoin, trying to separate. Bitcoin's brand from the rest of cryptocurrency. Just a quick note: we are a storytelling podcast. We're not a financial podcast. We're not an investing podcast. We're here to talk about the power and art of storytelling. Nothing you ever hear in this episode or any of our episodes is financial advice and should never be taken as such. And we're here to talk about it as a storytelling mechanism and not as an investment vehicle. And with that in mind, let's get to our conversation with Steve. Today we are so glad to be joined by Stephen Cole, who has an amazing story that I can't wait to get into. But I should really leave it up to himself to tell his own story. So, Stephen, to start us off, can you tell us a bit about yourself? What is your story? Absolutely.、Um, appreciate you both having me. So I,、uh, I'm from the Midwest originally. I was born and raised in Missouri,、um, born in Kansas City, and then moved to a small town after that, where I lived up through my college years. And I was always really intrigued with technology. So from a young age, I was really attracted to computers and the internet.、Um, I'm 36 now, and so when about that time was when the internet was kind of starting to become more widely understood. And then I really got、um, kind of into the online security culture and the the computer hacking culture. I became just intrigued with that whole world, you know, of cybersecurity. And so、uh, I studied computer science in college. I went to a public school in Missouri, Missouri Southern State University. And when I was nearing graduation, I knew, and that was around two thousand seven, two thousand eight. I knew that I wanted to work in Silicon Valley. Um, I ended up getting a job offer from eBay,、uh, so I kind of did engineering there, dabbled in engineering leadership, and then kind of became enchanted with the notion of startup companies. After that, and I、uh, I followed a leader who I really admire to a small cloud computing company called Cloud Scaling. This is where a very interesting,、um, almost bifurcation of my interests began. I think because. I found myself getting more to this place where my day job was still web engineering, but outside of that, I was really, really pulled toward economics and money. And a few years later, I encountered this technology called Bitcoin. I started attending these free public meetup events around SF. I think that was key in in my、uh, kind of development in that world because I had been. Trying to research online, and the information about it was really scattered. But having those conversations with real people and hearing what Bitcoin meant to them, how it had you know changed their life, or how they believed that it could change the future, that those stories, if you will, were were kind of instrumental in in my journey into this and my gaining an appreciation for it. And so, to kind of fast forward from there, over the following years, I gradually began to shift my focus.、Um, so every year, it was a little bit less and less on the web technology focus, and more and more on sort of economics and Bitcoin. I started、um, investing into Bitcoin personally in 2013. Started learning more about venture capital and angel investing, and trying my hand at that around 2016. 
And um, so now I'm kind of in a place where that has become the, the full-time focus. Yeah, amazing story. Really, really interesting. I love the progression. I love how kind of, I, I love your vision on it because you have that kind of good 2020 vision where you're connecting the dots. You're able to say, oh, because I did this, it led me to this. And because I was interested in economics at that time, it found this. And I love the way you were able to connect the dots there from kind of a retrospective point of view. Um, and, you know, something we talk about a lot is it it makes it sound very linear, but it I bet it wasn't that linear. <laughs> um, Absolutely. You're right. It was not at all that linear. Um, there were, you know, sort of pitfalls along the way and zigs and zags um, and everything you can imagine. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think that analyzing my journey in hindsight and trying to go through that exercise of connecting those dots is, is something I try to do often because I, my passion has become helping um, people around the world understand Bitcoin, kind of Bitcoin education mm-hmm. and trying to accelerate Bitcoin adoption. And, uh, you know, having been doing that informally for over eight years now, have had, you know, some success and some, you know, lack of success and a lot of opportunities to see like what works well and what doesn't. And, and I think something that I've just really arrived at is you have to make it human, personal, and, and relatable. You know, um, so much of the information out there about this stuff, even if it is technically accurate and objectively true, it's just kind of feels cold and, and inhuman and a little bit inaccessible as a result. And so I love that challenge of encountering, you know, meeting someone new or uh, encountering a new group of people and thinking about, okay, what, what lens are, is meaningful to them to, to kind of view this through and, and explain this through and trying to make that connection. I absolutely love that because that's storytelling. And it's one of the biggest things we talk about when we have technical people on the show is that that storytelling, that ability to translate it in human form and educate people in a relatable way is essential to any big technological innovation because if you can't get people to understand it, if you get people to say, oh, that's too technical, that's confusing, I'm not going to look at it, you're never going to hit mass adoption. But uh, although we're using Bitcoin as an abstract storytelling lesson here and you don't really need to know the intricates of it, we've said the word enough that we're going to need you just to give us a high-level mundane definition of what is Bitcoin because this audience is not a crypto audience. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> For sure. Great call. Um, so Bitcoin, you know, big multifaceted topic. My favorite way to summarize it is that uh, Bitcoin is a new type of asset and it's a digital asset. And that asset has characteristics that make it really, really good money. So so a bit of background and historical context. Bitcoin was invented around 2008 by Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, Satoshi released Bitcoin via email to a small group of sort of hacker and like online hobbyist types. Uh, And there was a lot of skepticism initially. No one seemed to think that it would grow into much of a big deal. But um, 13 years later, it certainly has. Um, You know, the the market capitalization of Bitcoin now is hundreds of billions of dollars. It was over a trillion dollars at one point. And so as an asset class, it has gone from nothing to a trillion dollars faster than any other asset class in history, faster than sort of, you know, the tech companies, Googles and Apples of the world. 
Uh, I think the big breakthrough with it is solved the problem of digital scarcity. That sounds very simple, but there's a lot to unpack in, in that statement. Because the way that we've used computers and the internet that we have known for all of our lives prior to Bitcoin was an internet of abundance. And so, you know, if you have a file on a computer, if you have a picture or an MP3, it's fairly straightforward for, you know, me to share that with one of you. And, but if you think about what's going on there, it's not really that I have this picture and then I sent it to you and therefore you have it and I no longer have it. What's really going on is a copy operation under the hood, right? It's just, it's copying data. So every time that you load a web page, every time that you send an email, computers are sort of making copies of files under the hood and computers are great at that. And so we've just got very accustomed to data and information being abundant and being trivial to access. And the big breakthrough of Bitcoin is that it's the first time in history that there has been a limited number of something digital. So the maximum number of Bitcoin that there can ever be is fixed. Um, it's 21 million. Uh, to an, an important little uh, sort of fine print that goes along with that is that although that number is fixed at 21 million, they are divisible. Each Bitcoin can be divided up into 100 million pieces. And so the smallest unit of a Bitcoin is actually nicknamed a Satoshi after the creator and Sats for short. So, so if you think about it in those terms, there are 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis, which is plenty to, uh, it's still fixed, um, but it's just fixed at a very large number so that there's plenty to go around and that it could function well as, as money and be kind of a liquid good. It has a lot of volatility and that tends to scare people away. And this podcast recording is timely because over the last few weeks, um, you know, Bitcoin and crypto more broadly have been seeing the, the downside of a lot of that volatility. But when you really zoom out and you, and you kind of look at it year over year, it's not that abnormal. Um, the Bitcoin has had 85% drawdowns over its history. Um, the, the little tongue-in-cheek joke that people in the community make is that volatility is kind of this feature to, to make sure that only people who really have the stomach for this are, you know, are, are, uh, are successfully early adopting it. But, but I always just say, you know, go into it expecting that and go into it knowing that eyes wide open. So the, the real risk and sketchy territory comes if you try to time the market on Bitcoin short term, because that is not easy to do. Uh, I tried my hand at that for a while doing the day trading thing. I was highly unsuccessful. Um, I'm not a day trader by any means. Um, it's a very humbling experience. But I think if you really take a long term view and you say Bitcoin has these unique characteristics that make it good money and Perhaps the, you know, it's just a bottleneck in how many people know about it. It's an understanding limitation right now. Then the more people who know about it, the more adoption will grow, the more valuable it will become in the very, very long term. And so if you take that kind of multi-year view going into it, I, I, that's what I try to encourage. That's what I think is the, the most safe approach. You know, it's really, really fascinating. And, um, I think the market's been so weird and we're not really going to talk about financial advice, but we're talking about 
storytelling and this idea of the different cryptos and the different coins. And something you talked about very early on is that you have focused on Bitcoin. You want to talk about Bitcoin. You want to talk about crypto. And I think that messaging is so important because we know that as like things were popping up in the crypto space and all these coins were popping up, a lot of them were kind of get rich quick scams and a lot of them were too good to be true because they were too good to be true and a couple of cool things came up but um i think that's really interesting because it's so easy from someone from an outside perspective to say oh crypto that's all bitcoin because they don't fully understand the differences can you talk a little bit about this kind of danger of intersecting stories and how difficult it has been for your kind of mission to separate out the bitcoin story from the crypto stories for sure. Um, and it's uh, it's to the extent that I've even started to think of them as separate asset classes. So so some people will say, like, are you into crypto? And I'll say, not really. I'm into Bitcoin. Um, like there's kind of Bitcoin, the asset class, and then there's crypto, the asset class. And, and I believe that Bitcoin is different enough in its kind of fundamental properties of how decentralized it is. Um, how resistant to change it is that, that really just kind of puts it in a league of its own compared to the others. And the others still might have merit in various technical ways. Um, but, but I think those, those potential use cases are just a lot less kind of proven um, and sometimes less understood. Storytelling is integral in all of this. I remember prior to Bitcoin, I was interested in, you know, investing in general. And one of the places that I started was precious metals. So I kind of liked the idea of gold and silver as a hedge against inflation. And I thought, okay, they can print a lot of dollars, but they can't really as easily pull a lot of gold or silver out of the ground because that's hard. So maybe I'll store some of my value into those things. And some uh, cryptocurrencies, for example, have made analogies and comparisons to um, to precious metals. So Litecoin is another cryptocurrency that people might have heard of. And when I was first getting into this space, I became really excited about Litecoin because I had been an investor in silver. And people kept making these comparisons and they would say, you know, this, uh, the discovery of cryptocurrency, it's this new gold rush. And, you know, if Bitcoin is gold, then everybody already knows about Bitcoin. And so what's think about what's going to be silver. Um, and so I kind of got uh, swept up in that story of Litecoin being the silver to Bitcoin's gold. And therefore, I you know invested in Litecoin early on. And I think comparisons like that are understandable. Um, stories and looking at history is really you know the only way that we have in in some ways to to try to understand the future right it's kind of a, a best effort like trying to find some mapping of the past that you think is closest to what you're experiencing and and try to apply it uh, but the conclusion that i arrived at was that ultimately this is different and that bitcoin is unique and so i think looking at history where we had multiple things functioning as money, um, that is what happened. But if you look at why each of those things was used as money, then the analogy starts to break down a little bit in these interesting ways. Um, so the reason that silver was used as money in certain places is because there were certain regions of the world where silver was you know, in the ground and more accessible. 
And gold also had problems with divisibility. So if you, you know, had your savings in gold and then you wanted to go and buy some food or uh, buy some tools, then it's very difficult to use gold for those smaller payments, right? You can't sort of like shave off tiny enough pieces of gold. And so it had kind of those limitations in portability, divisibility, where it was available in terms of geography. And so if you kind of look at it through those fundamentals, um, Bitcoin doesn't have those same limitations. We now live in this hyper-connected world with the internet. And so a digitally native money is anywhere that a smartphone is. It's effectively, you know, uh, spendable and usable anywhere on the globe. And because it can be sliced up into very tiny pieces, um, you know, one, the, the smallest sliver of a Bitcoin that you can spend is much smaller than uh, one penny, one cent. And so you can, you know, sort of send money even smaller in smaller fractions than traditional payments that we're used to. So that divisibility limitation isn't there either. And so the conclusion I arrived at was, okay, even though that is, you know, there was a need for this silver to gold, that story doesn't quite apply to the same future in the same way. Um, maybe in this instance, we could have one global money. And because of the attributes of it, that could actually make sense and lead to a lot of efficiency by not having to trade between assets. You know, that's really interesting. I love what you said there um, about this idea of the story driving the intention there. And I think that happens a lot. And we talk about that as as a form of storytelling and it's a it's a it can be a good and a bad thing i think we talk about we've talked about before about the storytelling of con men and things like that where it's like it's it's really easy to tell a narrative and it's one of those things it's like some of the most readily adopted things some of the technology that last because someone was able to tell you a narrative because it's easier to say hey this is the net silver then break it down so i think it's it's a really important point about that we talk about the show is that not only is storytelling so important that we become better storytellers so we can sell these things better, but as a consumer, it's very important that we're critical about the stories we hear and say, okay, we heard that. It may, it's catchy. Our brains are wired to remember that. Our brains are wired to buy into that. But how can we dissect it to make sure we're making the right decision? So I think that's so critical in a space like crypto and like Bitcoin um, because it, it's about making decisions for ourselves and asking critical questions, not just kind of buying into the hype. For sure. And I would be remiss not to mention as well that when it comes to storytelling around cryptocurrency and some of the reputation for scams out there, I think another big factor is that that this is also the first time we've really been able to separate money from identity. And so in some cases, you'll have these cryptocurrencies that have pseudonymous founders um, or completely anonymous founders. And, and that's not inherently a bad thing. Um, even Bitcoin, you know, I, I mentioned that it was created by Satoshi Nakamoto, but there is an important uh, footnote to that story that that actually turns out to be a, a fake identity. So we don't really know who created Bitcoin. And in that case, it has worked well. It's almost functioned as a feature for Bitcoin, in my opinion, because now there is no leader to kind of coerce or influence to attempt to change the rules of the system. Um, but it 
that that lack of identity um, and sort of having that reputational skin in the game that can be that can lead to bad places um, when you get to this space where these new coins are being created at such a rapid rate and everyone's you know doing an ICO or creating an NFT and has their own DeFi project and and when you kind of see these projects that are taking a spreadsheet or, or a PowerPoint presentation and some marketing and, you know, launching a new coin and raising tens of millions of dollars under a pseudonym, then they don't have much incentive to necessarily stick around if they are filling their pockets with money um, from that, you know, initial fundraising round. And so that's been an unfortunate trend in the industry is uh, these they're sometimes referred to as exit scams or rug pulls. Um, you'll see some anonymous creator with a new coin and promises a lot of bells and whistles. Uh, and then, you know, they raise a lot of money and something goes wrong or the team vanishes and it's like great for the team. But then everybody who all the poor retail investors who put their savings into that um, usually get burned in those cases. And so I think that's unfortunate. And that's the type of stuff that I'm hoping we will get past um, that it's kind of this transitory phase that we're in with with this discovery process. Yeah, definitely a very important point. And it actually got me thinking, I read that, you know, because of the hyper connected world we are living in right now, this kind of mode of transaction has utterly destroyed the old fashioned crime of pickpocketing. Um, you don't see as many thieves going around the streets anymore because people aren't carrying wallets. They're not carrying cash as much as they used to. So there isn't that, you know, that much money to steal because most of the transactions are done online now. But I, I wonder, you know, and I know you uh, have had a long interest in cybersecurity. What kind of security issues are out there uh, in the crypto or Bitcoin world that you see and what are some things to look out for? So glad you asked. Um, security is a super important subject in all of this. And there are very many tragic tales of people who have put some savings into this asset class and then due to uh, security incidents lost a significant chunk. But yeah, it's, I think it's, um, it's kind of this big shared learning experience where we suddenly have to adapt to the notion of a digital bearer instrument existing because the phase of cash that we've been in for the last few decades, like money has become more digital, but it hasn't really been, um, cash in that physical bearer sense. So, you know, we have these balances in our accounts on our, you know, credit cards and in our checking accounts and whatnot, but that's all just kind of these numbers in centralized databases. And if you think about it, like someone can't hack in to Bank of America and steal all the dollars because there aren't any dollars there. It's just, it's this like row in a database that says, you know, how many dollars are in our account. Um, but there, there's nothing that they can really take. Um, they would just be effectively like zeroing out records and that doesn't make too much sense, right? So most cash has become digital, but it hasn't been a bearer asset. It hasn't been something that you can really take and go abscond with. And now with Bitcoin, it is. 
Um, so with Bitcoin, uh, we won't get into too much of the technical weeds, um, I, I don't suppose, but, uh, but there's cryptography that really powers how it works. And that just relies on a lot of special mathematical functions. And so what it really boils down to, the important takeaway, is that if you really own Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency, then there's effectively a very, very long, you could think of it like a very long password um, called a private key. And that controls the ownership to those coins. And there's this phrase that's often repeated around the Bitcoin community. It's become somewhat of a mantra. And it goes, not your keys, not your coins. And that's used to illustrate the importance of actually owning, like taking control over your funds, your cryptocurrency, and, and being thoughtful about the responsibility that that entails. Um, I, I think of it kind of like the Spider-Man thing, right? With great financial empowerment comes great responsibility. And so, you know, Bitcoin has a lot to offer. It is this open monetary network that anyone around the world can plug into and participate in with no permission required, no gatekeepers involved, and in a way in which your savings can never, ever be debased. Um, and that word debased just basically means they can't ever kind of print more Bitcoin to reduce the value of your Bitcoin. Um, that's what happens over long periods of time with dollars and sort of government issued currencies, right? Is if you just have $10,000 sitting in a savings account for 50 years, it's not going to be able to buy as much stuff um, 50 years later because they print a lot more dollars all the time. They print more yen, more euros, more pesos. So when you leave your savings in one of those currencies, the more that they print for themselves, the more your purchasing power goes down. So it's almost as if you're, you're sort of quietly being stolen from, um, you know, in this way that's not very obvious over time. Um, and so Bitcoin is immune to that. Um, no one can ever print more Bitcoin. There will only ever be 21 million. So that scarcity is a very powerful thing. But there are trade-offs. Um, so that means that in order to really, really receive the advantages that come with that, you have to um, control your keys. And that comes with some security considerations. And I'm happy to see that there's been a lot of development in the ecosystem to make that more practical for everyone. So, you know, it, like the early days of Bitcoin, um, you had to be fairly technical to be successful storing it in certain ways. And now there's a whole spectrum of different solutions available where if you are not technical at all and the idea of controlling your own keys, you're like, what does that even mean? How would I go about doing that? That's very intimidating. Um, don't be scared away from like investing in Bitcoin for that reason. There are ways to get started that are much like traditional finance, where you just, you kind of pay a company dollars and they give you Bitcoin and then they take care of holding those Bitcoin for you. But once you learn more about the, the solutions that are available, um, then, then there are various ways to kind of take control over those keys, transfer those Bitcoin from those third parties to yourself so that if that third party is hacked, if that third party, you know, becomes insolvent um, or if the government, you know, sort of nationalizes that third party, who knows what kind of scenarios could occur, then it doesn't affect your savings and your funds. 
You know, I, I love what I found so interesting about this kind of part of this conversation is this idea of scam stories. And we've been talking about scam stories throughout this kind of entire conversation because with Bitcoin, with crypto, with other things, uh, one of the first things that people who don't own, who don't, uh, who aren't in the space will talk about is the scams right away because they become so prevalent and like, oh, it's so complicated or it's so technical. But it was interesting because you talked about well, it's not that much different than a lot of the current financial forms, especially if you're not getting too into it. If, especially in the beginning, you can find a Coinbase, you can find, and you can put money in it like you would put your Bank of America. It's just in a different way of holding in a different asset class. Um, so with that all in mind and knowing that starting off, you can use a publicly traded company like Coinbase and knowing there's a lot of ways to get into it in a more safe and secure way, why do you think scam stories are so prevalent now? And what are some of the most prevalent stories that really irk you as someone uh, as someone yeah. in the space at Cyber Bitcoin? <laughs> For sure. Um, the stories that really irk me, um, one certainly jumps to mind that something that's made headlines over the last year is the country of El Salvador. So they adopted Bitcoin officially as legal tender. You know, it's considered legal tender for payments um, at merchants down in El Salvador. And the country has also got a strategic reserves of Bitcoin, similar to how, you know, the U.S. has a store of gold and treasury bonds and so forth. Uh, that's quite exciting. I'm, that's a trend that I hope will continue and we'll see other countries follow on. But uh, I went down there um, probably about six months ago by now with uh, Mark Moss and some other, another small group of Bitcoiners. And we really wanted to see what things were like on the ground for the citizens there that were trying to use Bitcoin and in some cases use Bitcoin um, for savings. And it, on one hand, it's you know beautiful and inspiring and it's great to see the impact positively that Bitcoin is having down there. But I remember talking with one of the organizations, um, they're, they're known as Bitcoin Beach, and they're kind of an educational workshop down there where citizens can come and learn about it. And they said that an unfortunate trend is all of these other cryptocurrency projects are now sending their sort of representatives into El Salvador and they're setting up shop, you know, on these street corners or going into places that are kind of outside of the reach of a lot of these Bitcoin institutions down there. And they're trying to, you know, I'm, I'm sure they frame it as, you know, they're just trying to educate the population about their cryptocurrencies. But I think in some cases, they can be taking advantage of some confusion. So they can be sort of naming, there are many coins that have Bitcoin in the name, but they are not actually Bitcoin, right? There's Bitcoin Cash, there's Bitcoin Platinum, Bitcoin Diamond, like all these different cryptocurrencies that people have created and just sort of tried to, almost like ride the coattails of the Bitcoin brand a little bit. And um, and so I think down in El Salvador, you see some examples of where people are piling on, trying to convince these uh, new users that, oh, like, well, you've heard about Bitcoin, but this other coin, um, you know, maybe this is a better place to store your savings. And who know, you know, it's kind of hard to know what's in their heart. Uh, and maybe they genuinely believe it's better in some ways, but maybe they're just trying to make a buck and kind of, you know, uh, skim some profits and slow down the progression of El Salvador towards this better Bitcoin future. 
And, and so that's one thing that I think, you know, I, I don't really want to see centralized government necessarily try to be the solution there. I don't, you know, I tend to shy away from regulatory solutions. So if there's no, um, you know, kind of entity um, in the government that's charged with policing that, then I just want to see individuals go and fight that with better education that, you know, it gets me fired up to try to create more accessible educational content, to try to make sure to, to foster organizations that are doing work on the ground over there um, to provide uh, sort of more objective, trustworthy Bitcoin content and, and combat some of that. Because I really do think it's a war of information in some ways. I mean, it's so important. Uh, it loops back to something we talked about so early on. It's that education and storytelling game. It's about getting enough powerful people and people of cloud inciting people involved in trusting, understanding it and getting people to understand what it actually is. And it gets muddy when people try to ride that wave, almost like it's almost fearful when it's on a big bull run and it gets really hyped up because people get too excited without really understanding the fundamentals. And we've seen that in other asset classes for sure. We saw that with the meme stocks, we saw that with retail investing getting really exciting when it becomes gamified. And we talk, you talked about how some companies getting really excited about like the blockchain and making these kind of brand moves or and not being really thoughtful about the underlying tech, the underlying use case. And that's where it gets so muddy because it's such a story time, such an education play. It's funny how much of it does come back now that I think about it through the lens of this discussion in this podcast to to storytelling and, and kind of using stories to to make things accessible to people. To close out our episode, we have this segment called Suspenders. It works like this. Uh, we ask you a random fun question that's unrelated to anything whatsoever. And you can give us any answer you feel like. I'm here for it. Let's do it. All right. Question of the day is, when you were a kid, what seemed like the best thing about being a grown-up? The, the shallow, immediate answer that I wanted to arrive at is just that, you know, I feel like it when you're a kid, there's all these artificially imposed barriers on what you're able to do. And I just remember thinking, and like, when I'm an adult, I can, I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want to, <laughs> you know, like you can, yeah. you can go to the fridge and you can select whatever you want. And it doesn't have to be this negotiation process with the parent and all that. So I got very excited about that. Um, but but yeah, and then I think on a deeper level, you know, it's like that that freedom and kind of sovereignty that you can apply to every domain of life. That's, I guess that's the essence of, of growing up and becoming an adult, right? Um, but it's funny, now when I do think back about it, the first real thing that I'm able to zero in on is like, I won't have to ask anyone when I open the fridge what I'm allowed to eat today. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, amazing. I think for me... Um... For me, it's interesting because I, I was never the kid that wanted to grow up. I was like super good being a kid. It seemed very stressful being an adult. And as I age, I'm like, yes, it is. Um, so, But for me, it was the access to the money where you could buy whatever you want. And there are 
yes, uh, in retrospect, there's a lot of stuff I still don't buy because I know it's ridiculous. But there is some stuff now where, like, I'll get some piece of clothing or something that my mother absolutely hates. And I'm like, well, I can buy it now because I make money. Adult. <laughs> no, that, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Same thing, but it was gaming consoles for me. Ooh, yeah. I was a big gamer growing up, too. Um, Super NES um, in my younger days, and then PC gaming more recently. Welcome to Top Hat. This is the part of the episode where we dissect and analyze some of the key learnings we got from this week's expert storyteller. And this week, we had a Bitcoin expert, Stephen Cole. So, Kev, you know, this week we talked about Bitcoin as an abstract storytelling lesson. And we got a lot of really great storytelling here because in emerging technologies, storytelling is so key uh, because you need things like buy-in. You need people to understand it. You need people to see its appeal. And especially when an emerging technology starts to branch, into a bigger type of technology going on mainstream because that's when competitors come in. Like in the early days, Bitcoin was the only game in town. So when people talked about crypto, they talked about Bitcoin and that was okay. But then competitors come in and no longer can Bitcoin be synonymous with crypto because there's too much scary, unknown, bad stuff with uh, crypto. So that's something Stevens been t- talked about a lot about how important it is to separate stories. And in any type of emerging technology or any type of storytelling in general, separating stories are so important. And, you know, we've actually seen this in so many different ways. Like one that comes up to mind is Coke and Pepsi. And Coke and Pepsi are even more similar than Bitcoin and some of these other cryptocurrencies. Um, Coke and Pepsi are too, I was about to say alcoholic. They're not. (laughs) (laughs) They're two soda products that taste similar. Uh, that have similar health negative effects. But there are people who choose between Coke and Pepsi not because of price, but because of brand loyalty. Because both companies spent millions and millions of dollars getting people to believe in the story of their brand, to believe they are separate, unique, distinct products, which allows them to build a loyal audience. People believe they taste different. People believe in their flavors. And that's because they spend so much money separating stories. To make an informed decision, we have to be able to separate stories. And that's why it was so important that Bitcoin gets separated from other cryptocurrencies. So all the news of fraud or risk or dangers, only the ones that apply to Bitcoin get applied to Bitcoin. It is always important to let people know what makes you stand out, what makes you you. Uh, when you're you know sitting within a pool of competitors and another point you touched upon uh just now grab uh is also important which is you know the the importance of education when you are trying to um spread an idea to popularize something uh like bitcoin in this case it is crucial that you remain open you put in the effort to really tell the the story of the product you're championing to the wider audience. And we talked about this with uh, Steven as well, how their own little Bitcoin community began to develop inside jokes and stuff like that. And they caught themselves and then they had to shift their focus into opening up to a wider audience. 
it is it is always tempting to be the cool kids, but if you really truly want to popularize something, you need to、uh, remember to kind of reduce that、uh, sense of exclusivity or secrecy, and really learn to educate people. And this is any type of storytelling. If you want to get mass adoption. When you're passionate about something, you have to understand that other people aren't. You have to talk to them at their level and spend some time educating them, so that you can spread a story. Because the stories that spread, the stories that get mass adoption, those are the ones that survive. Not always the best products survive, but the best stories do. And you know, one more thing about crypto and NFTs and all these conversations we've been having is it brings up a really interesting question: What is ownership? You know, this is one of the big breakthroughs of cryptocurrency and、um, and the blockchain is it's able to document ownership, right? It's allowing you to have a clear record of digital ownership and say I own that because on the blockchain it says I own that. But it, it brings up an interesting question of what is the story of ownership? What does it mean to own this microphone? I paid for it; it's in my possession. But who says I own it? What does it mean to own anything? And it's just a story. I own this microphone because I paid for it because I have it, and because there are laws in place from to stop people from stealing it. But these are all just stories. It's the same thing with NFTs. I own. I own it because I say I do on the blockchain because I own it on the blockchain. People can screenshot and share the screenshot, but other people who valued my story of ownership through the blockchain would pay for mine because they want. That kind of recognition. I don't know if this is an insight in learning, but it's a very interesting question that、uh, crypto and blockchain and technology have started: is what is the story of ownership? And to me, it's it's about trust. It's just an interesting question to ponder. And this has been another great episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie podcast. Thank you very much for listening on the devices that you own. Follow us on Instagram at lsbtpod, LinkedIn, Linusun Plastic Thai. If you like our content, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate you taking the time. You're making yourself better, and you're making the world better because you're getting one step closer to understand the power storytelling. We love you. Have a great day. Have a great week. We'll see you soon.